Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, welcome to tonight's version of California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can get to you, but it might take a while. California is a huge state, and uh, so you know there's a lot of outlying areas. So if we have to take extra time to get to you, we do have mediums on staff that can call you and talk to you about whatever seems to be going on in your particular situation, maybe calm things down and you know, take care of that until we can get out there. Anyway, welcome. We've got a great show. I've got a great show tonight. I say we because I have my producers working here today. And uh, something I've been really interested in, Mary Magdalene. Ralph Ellis has been with us before talking about King Arthur and the Round Table. And tonight he's going to be with us to talk about Mary Magdalene. And there's a lot of mystery with Mary Magdalene. You know, what part did she play in the Bible? You know, according to what's in the Bible. But what, you know, Ralph does really, really deep, deep research into this stuff. And I'm sure he's going to have some surprises for us because, you know, you, you only know what pretty much what, what's been written in that Bible. And I know I, I know that stuff by heart and a lot of people do. So it should be interesting to, to hear about Mary, you know, and find out what her real role was and, and what she was like, in you know, technically in real life and things like that. So that's what we're going to be talking to Ralph about today. In the meantime, if you're watching from Facebook and uh, you like what you see, please be sure to hit those like buttons. Give me some thumbs up. Give me some heart. Show, show me some love. Same thing with YouTube. And show me some WD-40. You can hear my chair. Same thing with YouTube. If you're watching from YouTube and you like what you see, please be sure to hit those like buttons and the hearts and all that good stuff. Because what that does is that puts us higher in the algorithm. And so that means more people get a chance to see the show and view the show. And I think it's working because uh, we just jumped up but 500 extra downloads on the, of the podcast version this month. Awesome stuff. Awesome. So you guys are doing your job out there. But again, if, if you like what you see uh, and you haven't subscribed already on YouTube, please be sure to do that. There's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. Click on him and the subscribe button will pop up. Just like Facebook, if, if you tend to like what you see, please be sure to hit that follow button and follow us because we've always, you know, we're, we're doing shows um, so Sunday through Friday. And uh, so there's a lot, a lot, a lot we pack in. Okay. And the other thing is I don't like to do totally sh total shows about paranormal all the time. I like to I like to mix it up like like today's topic and and uh, do current current events. You know we 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 delved into the um, the uh, <laughs> the pain pill thing. You know uh, Thursday talking about you know pain medication and and, and and different things like that. So I like I like to change it up. I like to change it up. Okay, so I'll shut up now and <laughs> without further ado, oh, I got to put my little ticker up. See, I got to push my buttons. This is my buttons again. Always those buttons. And without further ado, we're going to bring in our good, our good friend Ralph and uh, Ralph Ellis, and we're going to get into this. Okay? All right, here we go. Button. Who's got the button? Okay, there we go. Good morning. Yes, good evening from over here, but yes, good yes. morning to you. 
Mr. Ellis, for the people that haven't seen the other show yet, which already aired, obviously, tell us a little bit about you, please. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for having me on again, uh, Charlotte. Um, yeah, I've been researching uh, what I call revisionary theology for, a, you know, 40 years or so, mm -hmm. um, basically looking for the uh, biblical record in the historical uh, record, um, because on the surface, it's not there whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, mm -hmm. no, none of these characters appear to be uh, visible in the hi historical record. So that's what I want, went looking for many years ago. And I think I found most of these characters and most of these events in the historical record. So that's interesting. Um, and I've done this from um, a sort of secular viewpoint so i'm not uh, doing this from a religious uh, standpoint just looking at the history mm -hmm. and you can add on to that whatever sort of um, theology you like mm -hmm. but the bottom line is i think i've demonstrated that most of these books whether old testament or new testament are sort of like 90 percent real history so there is real history there within the biblical record you've just got to go hunting for it because it's not um, easily visible. It's been hidden somewhat. So that's what I do. And I've um, written 13 books now, I think, 14. I can't remember. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Now, our topic today, you've, you've written a book about Mary Magdalene. And there is a lot of mystery surrounding her. I mean, you know, there's the stories of, you know, her lifestyle, you know, different lifestyle things, you know, just the stories that travel down from generation to generation. So hopefully you can put some, uh, clear, you know, so, some new ideas in everybody's head about this, you know, because people really don't know this person. They think they know this person, but they don't. Oh, her story is very different to the one the Catholic Church likes to portray. So, yes, that will be interesting. All right. Sounds great. Well, tell me about Mary Magdalene. Um, okay, so well, what do we know by Mary Magdalene? Let's let's have a quick look at uh, what she looks like. So, if I do a uh, a quick screen share sure. for those of you who are looking on video, uh, you'll be able to see these images. And for those not, well, I'll just have to describe them yes. as they come up. So, you should be seeing um, the book cover. Is is that visible? I see it right there. Let's see if I get there. Add to this. Hang on. I think you've got to add it got on it. your there end. There we go. There is a book. Good. Cover. Excellent. Ah, yes. I can actually see it on yeah on the screen there. That's good. Okay. Well, this is just the cover of the book, Mary Magdalene, the Princess of Orange. Uh, so I wrote this about um, fourteen years ago, I think, something of that nature. So quite a venerable book, but the data in there is uh, still good. Hasn't changed. Um, basically, it's about the uh, hidden history of Mary Magdalene and her connection with everything golden and everything orange. And the city she went to was orange as well. So <laughs> we will get into that. Okay. Um, and it was orange and gold because she was a queen. And uh, this is an image actually of supposed to be of Mary, the mother, this one. Um, but you can see her dressed as a queen. This is from uh, Chartres Cathedral, if I remember correctly. And of course, she's got the crown of a queen because these were royals. That was mm -hmm. the whole point of my uh, Edessa 
book series was that this family was a royal family, a real royal family. So, you know, Jesus is known as the king of the Jews. He was a real king right. uh, because there was a real king in that era uh, who was the king of the Jews. Um, his mother was Queen Helena, and she was the queen of the Jews in the AD 50s. And of course, he followed on from there. And of course, he became the king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. But this family has been lost from history, which is why nobody knows about them. And they were the kings uh, and the princes of Edessa, which is in northern Syria. And we can talk about that in a later show, because I, I don't think we touched on Edessa in no, our last talk, did no, we? No, we didn't, no. Right. So we won't talk about that now because it's far too long. It's about a two hour talk. But just bear in mind that the Jesus character might have been a real king mm -hmm. and therefore his mother was a real queen and therefore the Mary Magdalene character, well, perhaps she was a princess as well. So we're talking about important aristocrats and princes, monarchies uh, in Syria and Judea in the first century. But their story's been covered up. She's nothing like the, the Bible then. I mean, it's not even close. Not even close. But if wow. you look at these um, uh, medieval type uh, imagery, uh, you, you can see that here. Right. Um, I mean, here she is. Actually, this is probably Mary, the mother. Uh, there's a uniform going on here. I don't know if people know about this. So um, Mary, the mother is in blue and white. Right. She's dressed as Orania. Oh. So we'll have a look at that in a minute. Whereas Mag Mary Magdalene is always in green and gold. Or green okay. and orange. Right, because when is... you think of Mary, she's always wearing blue. Yeah, always. always. So always. this is uh, more Mary the mother, but she's actually dressed. Uh, well, yes, we'll have a look at this. She's this is, um, but this is dressed as Mary Magdalene. This image is in um, uh, gold or orange, and this comes from uh, Revelations. This sort of imagery with the stars round her head. Um, so if uh, what does it say? Um, it says, this is from Revelations 12.1, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head was a crown of 12 stars. And you can see the 12 stars on her right. head there and a moon underneath her feet. Now, that's generally sort of regarded as being Mary the mother. Mm -hmm. But of course, these titles went from down the generations and so Mary Magdalene uh, as we'll see will pick up the same sort of titles as well um, so this is Mary dressed as Orania as we will see in a minute so if we go to the next one that's much more obviously Mary the okay. mother uh, stars around her head moon on her feet dressed in the blue and white so that is uh, Mary uh, as given in Revelations this is a cathedral in Slovenia. Uh, again, the same image, imagery, blue and white, with the stars around her head. <clears throat> and there's another one. I don't know why I've got so many of these pictures, but there we go. It's a very familiar imagery. And, oh, lo and behold, that's how we get the flag of the uh, European Union. That is cool. Look at that. Yeah, the EU flag was derived from this image of Mary uh, in the blue with the gold stars around her head. And of course, in the EU flag, there are 12 stars in the circle. They tried to make out uh, initially that there was only 12 
nations in the EU. Mm-hmm. But um, of course, that's that's no longer true. And it was recognized by who made this? It was uh, Arsene Heights, I think, was the guy who designed this. And he said, yes, he took this from the Book of Revelations. Mm-hmm. So the uh, flag for the EU comes is an image actually of Mary the mother or Mary Magdalene, because they are a part of the same family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes from the imagery of this, which is Orania. This is the Greek muse Orania, and she is the queen of heaven. And that's why she has the stars around her head, and she's dressed in blue and white, because if you look up, you know, uh, at the heavens above, you'll see the blue sky and the white clouds, so she's dressed in blue and white. And this is uh, Muse Orania. So this history goes back a long uh, way further than, uh, you know, first century Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, goes back into Greek uh, history and then before that goes back into Egyptian history with Isis, um, who was also the uh, Queen of Heaven. So this is a venerable history that was followed by many of these princesses. They're all the same. And um, we can see that on the um, the zodiacs. This is a zodiac from the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if uh, listeners know, but the primary symbol of uh, uh, Judaism in the first century was the zodiac. And we'll have a look at some of the zodiacs that we've got from uh, Judea and Jordan. <clears throat> but this one is a slightly later one. This isn't a Jewish one. This is a uh, Christian zodiac from the uh, 6th century, I believe this one. This is the um, Betxian Monastery, uh, just on the south of the Sea of Galilee. And basically, you can see a zodiac, but they've dressed the um, signs of the zodiac as disciples, monthly disciples. So you can probably read their name. Anyone um, who can see this, on the left, you'll see Aprilos, Maos, Eunos, so it's just the months of the um, year in a big circle, uh, just like a zodiac would be drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously they didn't want to portray it as a zodiac because maybe that was a little bit too heretical. Um, <clears throat> so they've dressed it as uh, the months of the year. But the important thing is in the middle, uh, we have the <clears throat> the sun and the moon. So we have the uh, sun with the... Um, sun rays on his head and the moon so we have a man and a woman dressed as the sun and the moon in the center because in the center of the zodiac you will get the sun uh, and perhaps the sun and the moon together and that is the basis of that imagery of mary with standing on the moon so she's an image of the moon she's an image of selene the uh, greek selene So this is uh, Helios and Selene, um, the sun and the moon at the center of the zodiac. Now, in Christian terms, who is the man and the woman mm-hmm. surrounded by 12 disciples? It's an overt imagery of Jesus and Mary right. surrounded by the 12 disciples. <clears throat> indicating, of course, that she is the primary disciple. She is the consort uh, of the Jesus character. She is the sun and the moon who 
had this cosmic marriage in the heavens above, um, which they do, you know, every time there's a, a solar eclipse, uh -huh. when they actually meet in the heavens above in flagranti delecto, I suppose you could say, they have this cosmic marriage in the heavens above. And that is the Jesus and Mary character. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, let me just clear my throat there. Um, so, yeah, that's the um, imagery that uh, underpins uh, Jesus and Mary. And, of course, they were... Um, They were married, of course, and well, we sort of know that anyway from the fact that um, Mary was the most important character. She was the first person to see, you know, Jesus in during the resurrection and so on at his tomb. Mm -hmm. uh, she was the one that, you know, uh, told the disciples, etc., that Jesus, you know, was not dead or had resurrected or however you like to uh, view that. She was the most important character. Uh, of these disciples. And, and within the Nag Hammadi Gospels, of course, you get these uh, references to Mary uh, saying that, you know, she kissed Jesus quite often. Uh, and then Peter is getting jealous and saying, you know, why do you, why would the Savior tell you, Mary, things that he has not told us, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. you know, famous things that I'm sure that uh, listeners will know about. Mm -hmm. um, but the slightly less well-known bit is that, um, well, in Revelations, of course, it, it sort of says this in Revelations 21.9. It says, um, and there came unto me one of uh, the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, um, and saying, come hither, I will show you the bride and the lamb's wife. Mm -hmm. Now, the lamb is obviously Jesus and the bride. Who is the bride? Well, if you listen to the Catholic Church, they try to make out that it is the church is the okay. wife of mm -hmm. the lamb. But quite obviously, um, it was actually Mary Magdalene. Yeah. And more than that, we get Mary as being not just the wife of Jesus, but the sister wife. Wow. Because this was the custom. Right. So we get this from 1 Corinthians 9.5, where Saul um, is angry that he cannot have a sister wife. So he says, have we not the power to lead about a sister wife as well as the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord, like Cephas, who is St. Peter? Um and that has caused some consternation, of course. So if you read that in a lot of Bibles, like the American Standard or whatever, it will say a sister and a wife mm -hmm. or a sister in the church or something of this nature. Um, so they've mistranslated it on purpose. But if you get one of the um, literal Bibles, which is the, you know, like the Derby Bible or the Rotherham Bible, which were deliberately made as literal Bibles, because, of course, when you're translating a, uh, from the Greek, it's very easy to translate and 
uh, adjust the text to suit what you believe it's supposed to be saying. So you interpret it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And depending on your viewpoint, that interpretation might not be correct. And so what the uh, Derby and the Rotherham do is they just translate it verbatim from the Greek into the English. Don't worry about the translation, about the context, just translate it. And of course, they will say sister wife. Mm -hmm because that is what the royals used to do in this uh, era. Right. Um, uh, who, who do we have? We have Agrippa II, the king of you know Judea, mm -hmm. uh, was married to his sister Berenike. Sure. Uh, Monobazus was married to uh, Queen Helena. Um, these were monarchs in sort of northern Syria. Um, but that's and... how they keep the bloodline going. I mean, that, that was the key behind it, to always have a constant bloodline. Yeah, of course. Um, it, it's the only way to keep the bloodline pure, as it were, for, right. for that right. particular monarchy. Right. And so that's what they used to do. Um, and so that's what this family were doing as well. Now, um, the, the only change I've made to that, because I wrote about this back in 97 with my Jesus Last of the Pharaohs. Mm -hmm. The only change I've made to that recently is uh, I think they were probably half sister half brother mm -hmm. because um i get the impression that the to make the genealogy fit that the mary character had to be much younger than the jesus character and therefore she would have to be a, a half sister not a full sister but apart from that i do think that yes she probably was the uh, sister so um she was mary from the house of bethany Mary and Martha from the house of Bethany, where Jesus went um, to raise Lazarus, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and you get the impression from what it says there that Mary was closely mm, linked to Jesus, the way she sits in the house and waits for him, etc., etc. And lots of people have judged from that that she was, you know, the wife of Jesus, mm -hmm. um, waiting for her husband to come into the house. But the other interesting thing about that is that um, uh, this was the house of Simon, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so Mary and Martha lived at the house of Simon. And this is where the anointing took place. We, we'll discuss that in a minute. But um, it was it was suggested by Professor Robert Eisenman, and I fully agree with him, that Mary Bothus was Mary Magdalene. So within the Talmud, we have this character known as Mary Bothus, uh, Mary and Martha Bothus, who are the daughters of Simon Bothus, and therefore they lived at the house of Simon. So you can see the connection here. Mm -hmm. um, and he goes through what the Talmud says of these, these women, and shows that they were Mary and Martha, the Bethany sisters. Except that he cannot finally say they're the same people because we have a chronological dislocation, which suits my interpretation very well. So obviously Mary and Martha um, would have had to have been in the AD 20s, mm -hmm. To, to be related to uh, uh, Jesus. Whereas I say this story actually happened in the AD 60s. And the story has been deliberately 
relocated back into the AD20s to keep it away from the tragic events of the Jewish revolt. But I say that this was a Jewish revolt story and it all took place 40 years later um, in the AD 60s during the Jewish revolt. And of course, these two characters, um, Mary and Martha, both us are AD 60s characters for the Jewish revolt. And that's why Professor Robert Eisenman cannot link them physically together. So he says, oh, well, you know, the story of Magdalene was based upon these two sisters. You know, mm -hmm. they just rewrote the story. I don't think that's true. I think they are AD 60s characters. Hmm. Um, but the thing about it, the best, most interesting part about this is if Mary Magdalene was Mary Bothers, mm -hmm. uh, she was the richest woman in the Near East, in the whole of the Roman Empire. Oh, changes the story somewhat. So Mary Bothus uh, was, I say, the richest woman. Her dowry, when she got married, was one million gold denarii. So she was a millionaires in gold denarii. In, in modern terms, that's worth about $26 billion. Huh. Uh, and who did she marry? Well, she married Jesus. Jesus of Gamala. This is from real history. This is not, well, real history. This is from the Talmud, right. <laughs> if you can consider the Talmud to be real history. But this is the history that the Talmud gives. Um, and so Mary Bothus married Jesus of Gamala, um, who was the governor of Galilee. And he was the leader of 600 rebel fishermen. Okay, so now who was the leader of rebel fishermen in the first century. <clears throat> We're coming back to the gospel story. You can see how all of this sort of fits together. Right. Um, and then she bought uh, the priesthood for her husband, Jesus, with a tarkob of silver. So... Uh, we're not quite sure how much that is, but I worked it out as something like between uh, 20 and 70 kilos of silver that she gave to the priesthood in order to buy the high priesthood for her husband, Jesus. And he became the high priest in about AD 64, I think it was, something of mm -hmm. that nature. Mm -hmm. um, and that fits actually with the gospel story because uh, Hebrews 7 says that Jesus became high priest. And he became high priest in a different manner because he was not a Levite. He was not supposed to become high priest. Mm -hmm. And so they had to have an election to have him elected. And it goes through this reason why having an election is much better than uh, being a Levite and being hereditary. Mm -hmm. um, so it does suit that story from the Gospels very well. But that changes the story of somewhat, of course, because... Mm -hmm. It's now talking about aristocrats um, and um, very rich, maybe princes. Um, but uh, that, that has always been known uh, ever since sort of medieval times. Because, you know, if you read the, the golden legend, and okay, people will say golden legend is just mythology, but mm -hmm. it's a story of the Gospels that come out, comes out of this sort of medieval period. Um, and it says something very, very similar. 
So the golden legend will say that uh, Mary Magdalene, this is just a quote from, from this text, mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene had the surname of Magdalo, meaning a castle, and she was born of right noble lineage and parents which were descended from the lineage of kings. And her father was named Cyrus, and there's a good reason for that. It's linking um, the family back to Persia. Mm -hmm. um, and her mother was Eucharist. And she, with her brother Lazarus and her sister Martha, so note that they are linking Mary Magdalene as being Mary and Martha of Bethany. Right. So this was known about in the medieval era. Um, so Mary and her sister Martha possessed the castles of Magdalo and of Bethany, and also a great part of Jerusalem. All these things they shared amongst them, such that Mary had the castle at Magdalo, Lazarus held the part of the city of Jerusalem, and Martha had her part in Bethany. So it's saying that this family were rich landowners. In fact, Lazarus owned a large part of the city of Jerusalem. You can imagine how rich they were. And Mary owned the castle at Magdala. Um, so, you know, this great wealth of this family was well known um, and written about. But of course, the church will say, oh, no, no, they were, they were just paupers. You know, Jesus was just a carpenter, you know. Um, and so, you know, Mary was just a prostitute. Right, right, right. <laughs> you see how they can change the story by just changing it a little bit, because the New Testament doesn't say that Jesus was a carpenter. Right. It doesn't say that. It says he was a tecton. And a tecton is an architect. You can still hear it in the English, architect, from the Greek tecton meaning a mason, <clears throat> but not just any old mason, um, a Freemason. Right. Well, so right. Jesus was uh, a Freemason of the uh, Judean Lodge, which is why the raising of Lazarus at the house of Simon at Bethany was a third degree raising. Oh. Um, <clears throat> if you look at it, um, just one minute. If you look at the uh, raising of Lazarus, it is a third degree raising, the same as you would go through nowadays in any Masonic Lodge, where the candidate dies um, and is brought back to life, obviously, um, figuratively speaking, of course. Right, right, right. Um, and that is a part of the ceremony. And you come out of the grave hoodwinked. So you have a cloth over your head just as Lazarus comes out of the um, grave or the tomb hoodwinked. It is a third degree raising, exactly the same as you would get in any Freemasonic lodge. The only difference being, I think it was a bit more of a trial than you would have in, in the modern ceremony. Mm -hmm. So in the modern ceremony, you just die for 30 minutes, basically, and then you're brought back to life mm -hmm. whereas it sounds like Lazarus actually had to go and stay in a tomb for three days which was probably quite a trial if you can imagine you're in a completely dark tomb maybe with no lights to help you mm -hmm. uh, and the stone is rolled across the front and you're stuck there right 
So it's why a bit of a trial. A why is there such a difference between your research and the Bible? Is, is, is it because they were trying to make Jesus more of an everyday guy, you know, to, to, to make him poor so people could relate to him? Yes, uh, that was a. That's always been the way, hasn't it? You know, uh -huh. they've they always try to play down the fact that these were important people. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the Israelites, I think, in the previous lecture. Right. And then we found out that these poor shepherds were actually the shepherd kings mm -hmm. of Egypt, the Hyksos. Uh, I think we talked about that last time, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, and so we suddenly found out that rather than being poor shepherds with starving sheep, they were actually the shepherd pharaohs of Egypt, who were the most powerful people in the whole of the sort of Near East at that time. Well, they've done exactly the same. Well, uh, yeah, they've done exactly the same with the New Testament story. We have this important royal family and they've played down their power, their wealth, um, and turned them into like a pauper prince of peace. Mm -hmm. And there was a good reason for doing it in this particular case, because the royal family that I think these people represent which is the Edessan royal family, these are the people who started the Jewish revolt okay. against Rome. And, of course, Rome didn't want you to know about that. They didn't want you to know that you could revolt against Rome and start a war in the East, known as the Jewish revolt. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what Rome wanted was to neuter this messianic form of Judaism, Nazarene Judaism. Uh, mm -hmm. Jesus was a Nazarene. So was Mary Magdalene, uh, which is interesting. Um, and so they, they got their pet Jew, who was Josephus Flavius, mm -hmm. and they said, well, can you recreate this story? Because it was popular at that time, and we can go through this later. It was already getting popular as a story. Um, and turn this powerful royal family into a more sort of acceptable form. And that's exactly what he did. So he made them a pauper prince of peace and a Rome-loving <laughs> pauper prince of peace. So this was now a guy who would say, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, turn the other cheek. I mean, this was the total opposite of what the this particular royal family had been trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can see this was all political propaganda. Um, and um, just as a, an interesting aside, um, if I... Uh, do a quick screen share here. So if I screen share this one. And I want to select a window. Let's select that one. So that should come up with a statue of Mary Magdalene. Yes, there we go. Um, this is a part of um, Mary being uh, a Nazarene. Now, we sort of know that she was a Nazarene. So a Nazarene is a, a particular sect of Judaism. It's a very old sect. They were known as Nazarites uh, back in the Old Testament. And it was a sect of Judaism 
uh, it's uh, known to to separate. It means to separate. And I think what that refers to is to separate yourself off from society like the Essene did down on the shores of the Dead Sea at Qumran. Mm -hmm. Like in a monastery, you separate yourself off, and they with the Nazarene. And the peculiarity of the Nazarene, well, one of the peculiarities um, was A, they venerated the zodiac, but B, um, they had long hair and beards. Um, so they weren't allowed to cut their hair. And that's why all of the Edessan kings all had long hair and beards. And we'll look at those in a minute, perhaps. Sure. Um, but the queen of this family, who was Queen Helena, she became a Nazarene. And we know this because the Talmud tells us so. She went through seven years of initiation to become a Nazarene. And of course, Jesus was also a Nazarene, according to the, uh, to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. He is called, specifically called a Nazarene. Uh, as was Saul as well. He was called of the sect of the Nazarene. Um, so we know this family were connected to the Nazarene. Was well, so was Mary Magdalene. Uh, and we get this from the Talmud. And this gives you a good idea of how you have to translate this when you're reading these books, because they wrote this in code. All of it is in code and deliberately so because Rome said that these were this family was persona non grata mm -hmm. because they had started the Jewish revolt and therefore you weren't allowed to mention their names, which is why you cannot find the Edessan royal family in the history of pretty much all of Rome and all of Josephus Flavius. You can go through the books of Josephus Flavius and he never mentions overtly the Edessan royal family once because they've been deleted from history. The Romans didn't want anyone to know about them, and so they were deleted. Mm -hmm. um, well, the Talmud has done the same. And uh, so the Talmud calls uh, Mary, uh, the, if you read it in the English, so if you've got the Talmud in the English, uh, it calls her Miriam, the dresser of ladies' hair. Huh. That is why you get this uh, statue that we're looking at in this picture, which is Mary covered in hair. So she's hair all over her. And you'll see quite a lot of imagery, especially in France, of Mary uh, covered in hair. And also Mary of Egypt as well, who's supposed to be a saint, but she's mm -hmm. really Mary Magdalene, actually. Um, and she's covered in hair as well. And she's covering up her modesty uh, mm -hmm. with this long hair. Why? It's because the Talmud calls her Miriam, the dresser of ladies' hair. But of course, that's just a play on words. All of these, especially the Talmud, it's all just a play on words. And you've got to understand what it's talking about. So in the Aramaic, it's Miriam Magdala Nashaya. Well, Miriam, the dresser of ladies' hair. But of course, you can read that if you read it phonetically. You can read it as Miriam Magdala Nazarene Nashaya. So they're just making a play on words to say that Mary Magdalene was a Nazarene. The same sect as Jesus and Saul were both Nazarene. Um, and that's why you get this imagery of Mary Magdalene dressed up in hair. So 
you get a lot of this symbolism and you've got to sort of be able to understand what this symbolism refers to. Um, and here's another one. Uh, there's, I've got a few of these, actually. This is uh, Mary Magdalene. Um, and again, with the uniform, she's dressed in gold. So this is Mary Magdalene. And she's got a skull. And you will often find that Mary Magdalene is always sitting with a skull. Here's another one. And here's a more modern one. This is sort of 19th century with a skull. Uh, <clears throat> here's another one, Mary Magdalene with a skull. Um, this one's a more famous one. What does that signify, the skull? That's weird. Yeah, no, no. It's Well, again, they give the wrong interpretation. Here's another one mm -hmm. in gold. And again, she's in gold um, with a skull. And here's another one. <laughs> it's, it's a very common piece of imagery. So what does it mean? Well, if you read the sort of Catholic Church, they'll say, oh, she's a penitent Mary Magdalene. She's weeping because it's a symbol of death, of course, the, the skull. Um, and uh, so she, she's the penitent Mary. But uh, it's not really. Um, it's, uh, what is it in? Um, Latin. It's, um, I'm just trying to remember what it's uh, called. It's called Calva. Um, let me just, uh, yeah, Calva is a skull in the Latin mm -hmm. or Golgotha in the Greek um, or Golgoleth uh, in the Aramaic. And of course, that is the place where Jesus was crucified. He was crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull, or uh, if you read it in the Latin, Calvary. Mm -hmm. So it's symbolizing uh, the place where uh, Jesus was uh, crucified. And that's why Mary Magdalene is associated with the skull, because she was the wife of, of Jesus, of course. Um, but you can also put a second layer on top of that because in the French, uh, this was by the French poet uh, Fallion, I think, uh, he said the skull is a potentette, a jar of the head or a cup of the head. Because I suppose, you know, if you turn a skull upside down, it's like a cup, I suppose. Right. Uh, it's a cup of the head. <clears throat> But of course, if you read it again phonetically, and this is what you always have to do with some of these things, mm -hmm. it's a potentate, which in French is a potentate, meaning a queen. Right. Okay. So again, it's hinting that she is a queen. And that was half of the reason for drawing this skull with Mary Magdalene, to show that even if she was dressed in, in rags, like this painting here, right. Mary Magdalene in rags, she was still a potentate. She was a queen. Hmm. Um, that's how you have to read these, uh, these uh, imagery, uh, both sort of modern. Oh, that one's gone off. Yeah, that's rather big. Um, so... And we can go further with this. Uh, this is Mary Magdalene. For some reason, it won't go any smaller. Let's go on to the next one instead. This is Mary Magdalene as she's often portrayed. This is Mary and Martha. Uh, 
-hmm. So we have Martha on the left and Mary Magdalene on the right in the traditional green and gold, or in this case, she's green and red. Um, and she's holding a jar. So she is um, Mary with the, um, the lady with the alabaster jar, huh. I think is the famous book, if you re remember that one. Yeah. Is it by Margaret Starbird? Was that Starbird? I can't I remember. Think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah the, the lady with the alabaster jar, um, because that is the symbol of Mary. Uh -huh. Well, that one looks more like a grail. That's wrong. Um, this one is better, I suppose. This is Mary holding an oh. alabaster jar. And likewise here, out on the left-hand side, she's got a skull and a jar. There you go. She's got both. And again, she's in the uh, the gold of Mary Magdalene. Um, so she is the lady with the alabaster jar. And therefore, we come back to... Um, we come back to the house of Simon. Mm because that's where she is mentioned with this um, alabaster jar, because she is Mary of Bethany, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, Matthew says, this is Matthew 26, 6, I think. It's quite a long passage, this one. Um, Jesus was in Bethany at, at the house of Simon the leper, and there came to him a woman having an alabaster box or jar of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat to eat. Um, and then the disciples say, well, that was expensive. Why did you do that? You know, this ointment might have been given and sold and, and the money given to the poor, etc. Um, and then Jesus obviously defends her and says, no, of course, there was a good reason for doing this. Um, this, I think, is more important than people normally make out because what she was doing was anointing Jesus with oil. Right. And that is how you make a Messiah or a Christ. Because um, the, the Christ is not a spiritual sort of title. Mm -hmm. It's actually a secular title. Um, it means the anointed uh, the anointed priest king okay. of the Jews, same as Messiah, it's the anointed one. And more often than not it's a secular term. It's not a it's not a spiritual term. So King David was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So was Cyrus the Great from Persia. He was the Messiah. Um, and so if you became the Messiah or the Christ, you were the anointed king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And that was the whole point of the ceremony, that Jesus would become the king, the king of the Jews. That's why he was called the king of the Jews, but not just any old king, a real king of the Jews. And there was a real king, of course, uh, of the Jews in the 80s, 60s. And that guy was uh, King Jesus Jesus of Edessa. So there was a real king of the Jews who's not mentioned because he's he's largely been deleted from history, and we can talk about his uh, history later. Well, that would be a case of um, maybe you know he got, he gets deleted because it's confusing for people. 
Well, it it, 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 two reasons. I mean, it goes against what the Christian um, gospels are trying to teach, that right. he was a real king, even though it says he was a real king. I mean, he was born right. as a king and he was crucified as a king. Um, and yet they say, well, he wasn't a king really, you know. Um, but of course, as we said before, the Romans wanted to delete this monarchy because they were involved in a dispute with Rome, uh -huh. the Jewish revolt against Rome. And so Rome deleted them from history and therefore you couldn't know anything about them. Um, and so the term Christ has has devolved into this spiritual term where he's the Christ. He's, you know, something related to God. But that's not really what the Christ meant. It meant the anointed priest king of the Jews. He was a real king. Mm -hmm. But the person who anointed him was Mary Magdalene. Okay. Now, that's interesting because the, the person who anointed Queen Elizabeth II, when she went through exactly the same ceremony in the 1950s, mm -hmm. when she became Queen of England, sorry, Queen of Great Britain, mm -hmm. Um, she was anointed in the same fashion by the high priest, okay. who was the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. As will Charles be in May. As well. we remain to see, because that's coming up on the 8th, isn't it? I seem yeah. to remember. Yeah. Um, now, I've not heard, actually, is he going to be anointed? Because that is the traditional ceremony, and he should be anointed. So they will have an alabaster jar of spikenard mm -hmm. and they will anoint him on his forehead and supposedly on his chest as well uh, with spikenard the same as jesus was well, in like order say, for him it should be interesting to see if they do it because he's he, he, he he's cutting the ceremony you know down <laughs> so it's shorter yes, he God is. Knows what he's gonna do yeah and and he wants to be the the defender of faiths and not the faith. And so, you know, this ceremony doesn't have much to do with Islam or Hinduism or any of the other religions. Mm -hmm. So what's he going to do about this? I don't know. But Queen Elizabeth II, she was anointed sure. uh, on her forehead and on her chest with oil by the high priest. Now, Jesus had exactly the same, which means that Mary Magdalene must have been the high priest, priestess. Wow. Therefore, she was much more important than the uh, the Gospels make out. Um, she was the number one disciple. That's effectively what the Nag Hammadi Gospels actually say. Um, but she's been reduced down to the prostitute. <sighs> largely well a because this family have been deleted from history so we don't know much about them b because it became very patriarchal within the roman catholic church mm -hmm. um and the pope character of course in the catholic church never had a wife whereas mm -hmm. jesus would have had a wife and the church of the nazarene and, and the Judaic church as well would have had a wife. Right. Um, within Judaism, the high priest of Jerusalem uh, has a wife. In fact, the high priest of Jerusalem has two wives, mm -hmm. one to be kept in reserve, which is why I say in my books that Jesus was married not only to Mary Magdalene, but right. also to Martha as well, huh. to the Bethany sisters. That's why are, they are the Bethany sisters. So they were both the wives of Jesus. 
because the high priest of Jerusalem, and he became high priest, mm -hmm. should have a, a wife held in reserve, as it says in the Talmud. Interesting. So he had two wives. Um, and therefore, he would have had a load of kids as well. Um, right. And that was the whole idea. I mean, with, within Judaism, that's a sort of duty. You know, you don't just have a wife. You have a wife and 10 kids, you know. Right. Um, and so, yes, there would have been a lot of offspring from this union, which would have been floating around after the uh, Jewish revolt failed. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there are some of them sort of mentioned. There's um, one in the New Testament, Elizar, seems to be perhaps a son of Jesus, who is blinded by Saul. Um, and also there is one perhaps at, um, within, within Arthurian legend as the king of Palmyra, might well have been a son of Jesus as well. Um, so yes, there would have been a... a a number of these offspring knocking around the Mediterranean because they were connected to this Jewish revolt and therefore this family was scattered after the Jewish revolt failed. Um, so um, we have a mention of this from the Talmud. So uh, again, we're back to the Talmud. The Talmud is not especially historical, but I think when you read it in its code, I think there is a lot of history, real history that's um, mentioned within the Talmud. Uh -huh. And again, this comes back to uh, Mary Bothus, this woman who was the richest woman in the whole of the Near East who was the wife of Jesus of Gamala, um, who I think was the biblical Jesus. Um, so after the, this family was involved in the Jewish revolt, they were the leaders of the Jewish revolt. Uh, but they lost, of course. And so Rab Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, who became the leader of Judaism after the revolt failed, um, he comes across this lady. So it says, um, Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai left Jerusalem riding upon an ass. Mm -hmm. Well, he's sort of imitating Jesus there, of course. Mm -hmm. While his disciples followed him, again, <laughs> imitating Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and he saw a girl picking barley grains from among the dung of Arab cattle. Um, as soon as she saw him, she wrapped herself with her hair, i.e. she is Mary Magdalene, because Mary Magdalene is portrayed with the long hair, of course, covering up her body. Right. And she stood before him saying, Master, feed me. And uh, Johannan says, my daughter, he asked her, who are you? Well, he knows who she is, really, of course. He's just making out. Mm -hmm. She replied, I'm Mary, the daughter of Bothus Nicodemus. And he says, my daughter, he says to her, what has become of the wealth, the great wealth of your father's house? That comes from Cathaboth uh, uh, 66b. Mm -hmm. um, they have lost all of their 
wealth, all of their great wealth. And now she's down to picking barley grains from among the uh, dung of Arab cattle, wow. trying to portray the great fall of this family from the wealthiest family in the whole of the Eastern Roman Empire down to picking barley grains because they have no food. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so this was the great fall of this family. And that's why we have this, this story of them being sent across to uh, Provence in, the, in uh, the south of France. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's probably where they went. It's, it's probably quite likely because all of the Jews of this region were exiled after the mm -hmm. Jewish revolt. Josephus Flavius says that two million he always exaggerates, of course, but he says two million of them were scattered and taken into slavery uh, within the Roman Empire. Uh, okay, so he's exaggerating, but even if it was 200,000, right. that's an awful lot of people. And so it's quite likely that this family, because they now had no wealth, all of their property had been taken away from them, of course, that they would be scattered and they could well have gone to the south of France. And so Mary uh, dashed off to the south of France, where she came ashore at uh, Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer, mm -hmm. um, where there is still a great tradition that she came ashore. Um, this is next, just to the uh, west of the Rhone, um, Rhone Valley. Mm -hmm. And there's a great tradition that she came ashore there, which is still held every year. The gypsies come down to the south of France and they hold this uh, festival there. And the whole of the town of Saint-Marie, well, that's why it's called Saint-Marie, of course. Uh, Mary on the Sea is the name in English. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> there is a very strong tradition that she came ashore there. And that would be a likely position because that's where... Um, that's where uh, Herod uh, Archelaus was sent when he was a bit of a tyrant and they had to be get, got rid of. He was sent to, the, to Provence in the south of France. Um, so was uh, Pontius Pilate. He was sent to there as well. So it was a favorite place for the Romans to send these people, you know, to keep them away from, you know, where they had been in Judea. Um, and it's a very nice place, a very prosperous, a very Roman. Some of the biggest Roman cities and amphitheaters and, and uh, theaters are there in the south of France. It was a very wealthy, prosperous area. And um, I think she probably did come ashore there. Mm -hmm. So you move up from uh, a, the River Rhone goes north-south. So from Saint-Marie, you go up the Rhone River and you come to Arles, which has got this enormous great Roman amphitheater there. Uh, which is still in good condition. They still use it for uh, shows and so on. Uh, and then the next one you come to is uh, Tarascon, Bouquet Tarascon. And uh, that's where Martha is supposed to have gone. So Martha of Bethany, uh, she is supposed to have gone there. And I might have an image of Martha somewhere. Do I have one? Uh, can't see one, but I've got this one instead, so I can do a share on this. Okay. Um, 
share window. So share that one. And uh, yeah, she was supposed to have come ashore. Well, they're in the same boat, of course, and she went up to Tarascon and she defeated, this is Martha mm -hmm. of Bethany, she defeated the Tarask, which is where the name for Tarascon comes from. <clears throat> and this is an image of the uh, Tarask, which was this fearsome monster that she sort of half dragon, half tortoise sort of thing. Uh, and it's still the symbol of the city is the Tarascon, mm -hmm. the, uh, the fearsome Tarask. And just looking at the Tarask, well, it looks like one of these to me, but I'm not sure. This is a glyptagon right. Whoa. from yeah. ancient history. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. Um, and it, it just looks to me like they have seen uh, a glyptagon. I don't know. A glyptagon, for people who can't see this, looks like a, um, a huge great armadillo, I suppose you might yeah. call it. Um, but it's supposed to be a South American animal. And it's not supposed to have been in Europe, but it just looks so much like the um, Tarasque. It's mm -hmm. as if that they um, had seen a glyptagon, and that was the monster that was tamed by Martha. Right. Um, and then we run up uh, the Rhone Valley a little bit more, and we come to Orange. <clears throat> and for many reasons, I think, because if you, if you look at the mythology of the region, it says that Mary went to um, uh, Saint-Maxime, and Aix-en-Provence, which is slightly towards the east. We get these two touristy towns where all of the pilgrims go to because Mary, um, Mary Magdalene was supposed to have ended up in Saint-Maxime, um, where her tomb is supposed to be. Have we got a picture of her tomb? Let's have a quick look somewhere down here. Just scanning through some of these images. Um, yes, here it is. That is supposed to be the skull of Mary Magdalene um, <clears throat> in a golden reliquary, of course. And this is supposed to be her tomb, but this is just a standard tomb. The, there's dozens of these in the Arles Museum, so I don't think this is anything to do with Mary Magdalene. This is a, mm -hmm. uh, a Roman sarcophagus from the second and third century so i don't think that really has anything to do with mary magdalene i think she went up to here instead so not to saint maxime uh -huh. but to orange uh -huh. because she was the orange princess um her mother was orania um, in, in, in my chronology, I do of the Edessan monarchy, her mother would have been queen, uh, sorry, grandmother would have been queen, um, Orania and it's from Orania. Orania means the heavens, uh -huh. but or in Latin and in French, of course, means gold from which we get orange because orange is the golden color, of course. Right. Um, and this is the city of orange which is in southern France on the Rhone Valley. <clears throat> and this is a classical romantic image of uh, orange, but it's still there. So this is the modern um, 
Arc de Triomphe, as you might say, of Orange right, in right, the south right. of France. And it's still there. I mean, this is, um, I think this is uh, third century, this particular arch. So it's eight, uh, 1800 years old. Um, and this is the um, amphitheater. Uh, sorry, not amphitheater. This is the theater, which was supposed to have had the straightest and greatest wall in the whole of the Roman Empire, which is this great wall on the front of this right, yeah, uh, theater yeah. that you can see here. Well, uh, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's huge. Uh, when you sit below it, it's absolutely enormous. And this is looking inside the theater. And while I was there, they had a play because they still use it. It's a full theater. You can see all the seating there. It's still used. And the play when I was there was Mary Magdalene, of course. <laughs> look what and, happened. Yeah. So there you can see there's a big picture of Mary Magdalene at the back of the theater, this Roman theater. I mean, this Roman theater is 1,900 years old, maybe even 2,000 years old because this theater is actually earlier. So it's a 2,000-year-old theatre that's still in use. And um, the play when I was there was Mary Magdalene, although they've got the wrong... <clears throat> you can see she's holding the alabaster jar, uh -huh. so we know it's Mary Magdalene. But they've got her in red because she's supposed to be the scarlet woman uh. because they portrayed her as being a prostitute. But, of course, she wasn't. She's, she's supposed to be in the green and gold of Mary Magdalene. Here's a question. Um, what were the acoustics like in there? Because I know... Oh, uh, people that have marvelous. gone have said that they're excellent. Yeah, absolutely. It just reverberates backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. So that's why they made it, of course. So you don't need a loudspeaker. Mm -hmm. You can hear a person on the stage at the back of the theater just by the power of their voice and the uh, the acoustics. So, absolutely. yeah, absolutely marvelous. Um, and, of course, she wasn't called... Um, she wasn't called a prostitute. Um, it, it says um, of Mary Magdalene, uh, a certain woman which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities called Mary Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Um, <clears throat> but the evil spirits in the Greek are uh, ponerous uh, pneuma, uh -huh. um, as in bad breath. But it doesn't really mean bad breath. It means evil winds um, because these devils, like we still call them dust devils today. Mm -hmm. uh, a dust devil is a devil and it's uh, an evil wind. It's a ponerous pneuma. Mm -hmm. So this is what it's talking about when it's talking about Mary Magdalene. It's talking about dust devils. Um, <clears throat> and that might sound a bit odd. But they are linked to the spirits, you know, in the in the Quran, they are called the jinn. The jinn of the Quran are dust devils, the same, these these winds. Um, so they're linked to winds, to the spirits, to the soul. And I think they're linked also to singing, perhaps. Because I think they, they used to have choirs and they used to sing, and the voice of the female choir was probably something to do with these winds uh -huh. um, because Nefertiti had the same sort of title uh, in the name of Nef Nefertiti she has the four of the trachea glyphs the lung and trachea well 
why does she have those in her name? Well, it's something obviously to do with breathing again, of breath, of winds, of perhaps singing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's got something to do with it. And again, when you die, uh, they have in Egypt the opening of the mouth ceremony mm-hmm. in order that your bar and car, you know, can leave the body or whatever. Right. Uh, I think that's probably what it's talking about, but it's, that's all a bit of a guesstimate because we don't know. Right. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, she most definitely wasn't a prostitute. So, um, but I think she came here. This is orange. This is me sitting <laughs> on the hill overlooking orange. Uh, and of course on the top of the hill, we have a statue of Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. sitting on the top of the hill over the town. And this town just happens to be a very interesting town, which is why I've linked it to Mary Magdalene, because it has a very strange history. It remained an independent principality, separate from France, separate from Gaul and separate from France, for over a thousand years. So it was an independent principality under the control of this guy, who is William of Orange. Hmm. And you can see he's got the golden cape of the Magdalene as well. And um, he was William of Orange because the town was called Orange. Uh, But his name uh, in the French was uh, Guillaume. So William is a sort of Germanic uh, pronunciation in the French. Um, or Akutan, it's Guillaume mm-hmm. de Galone, or Guillaume de Courtenez, or Guillaume de Orange. And this family remained independent in this principality all the way up until Louis XIV in the 17th century. And it was this family that kicked the Muslims out of France in the eighth, late 8th century. So the Muslims have been kicked out of France because they invaded all of uh, all of Spain, became Muslim, of course, mm-hmm. uh, during the great invasions of the sort of 8th, 9th centuries when the Muslims took over the whole of Christian North Africa. All of those regions have been Christian, of course, all of North Africa. They took over all of that region, then they took over all of Christian Spain. And then they came up into France and took half of France as well. And then they were ejected by Charles Martel at the uh, Battle of Tours, of course, the great battle when they were kicked out down into uh, Spain again. Well, according to the chanson of uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach, Mm -hmm. who also wrote all of Arthurian legend as well, they came back in again in the late 8th century and they were kicked out by this guy who was uh, Guillaume uh, de Gallone, um, the William of Orange, who was the Prince of Orange. Um, and his he had some clout because his sister was the Queen of France at the time, married uh-huh. to Louis I. So this family was very well connected. And um, this was a Jewish family. They were noted in uh, by Wolfram von Eschenbach as being Jews, which again suits them maybe coming from uh, the Near East, from Judea. Right. 
and uh, they have a, a story which is is comes down into um, into European history. So they are fundamental to the history of Europe. Mm -hmm. Now the the flag of this family was this flag, which was the gold star right. on a blue background, the single right. the lone star. And of course, this has been adopted by Europe, of course. Mm -hmm. So he was the Lone Star, one of the tribes, as it were. But the European flag we're looking at here is 12 of these stars. So again, not just not just the stars over the head of Mary, you know, from the book of Revelations, mm -hmm. not just the zodiac, because the zodiac has 12 constellations, but also the 12 tribes of Israel, because there are 12 tribes, because the tribes of Israel were based upon the Zodiac and the disciples of Jesus, the 12 disciples were based upon the Zodiac as well. And so the 12 stars of the EU flag are also based on the Zodiac and therefore also on uh, the disciples of Jesus uh, and also the 12 tribes. Never knew that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That, that's how deep this goes into uh, European history. And of course, um, Guillaume de, William of Orange, Guillaume de Cologne, was one of those stars mm -hmm. because it's overtly said that he was uh, of Jewish background and he had one of these golden stars um, on a blue background, just the same. Wow. Um, now, the other symbolism is this. This is the... Um, uh, the symbol of orange in France, independent principality, and the symbol is three oranges because it's called orange. Mm -hmm. But of course, these oranges are quite overtly sun symbols because or, as in orange, means gold, and the sun is the you know the golden ball in the heavens right, above. Right, right, right. So these are sun symbols, and we have three sun symbols in the imagery of orange and above we have a cornet because his other name was uh, Guillaume de Courtenez which means William the hook nose mm -hmm. but if again play on words if you listen to it phonetically Guillaume de Courtenez sounds like cornet right so rather than having a nose <laughs> on the on the coat of arms they've got a a cornet instead um and this uh symbolism is sort of linked because he was uh, guillaume de courtenez and the courtenay family of france have the same symbol the three now they call this uh, we're looking at a coat of arms here with three red blobs on it so yeah those who are uh, having to listen to this. The first coat of arms has three oranges on it. The mm -hmm. second one has three red circles. Now this one, which is the arms of Courtenay, Courtenay's, again has three red symbols. Now this is said to be the um, three red tarts. If you look at it in heraldry, the explanation is three red tarts, mm -hmm. um, not of the street walker variety, but of the um, pie variety. And you're thinking, why would you have a pie, you know, like a, a cherry pie as being your symbol? Um, 
Well, I don't think it's a cherry pie at all. I think, again, it's a sun symbol. Mm -hmm. And so you get three round circles. And, of course, these families used to run around Europe. I mean, Europe was separate, but it was also connected by these royal families and aristocratic families. Mm -hmm. And so we get the same family in Britain. This is the coat of arms, which looks exactly the same. <laughs> this is the coat of arms of the Courtenays in the south of England. So wow. they are the Dukes of Devon. Right. So they not only owned a great lump of France and Orange in south of France, but also Devon in the south of England. And they have the same symbol, three red tarts. Um, and this is the, uh, the Duke. I think he's, I think this is the present, uh, no, the previous uh, Duke of um, Courtenay in Devon. Oh. And this is the Prince of Orange. Because, of course, the Principality of Orange, it lasted, as I say, for a thousand years uh -huh. in the south of France, in the place called Orange. But they were kicked out by Louis XIV because they were independent, because they were Protestant. So again, they had a different faith to the Catholic Church. In the middle of France, which was Catholic France, we had this Protestant enclave that had been different to the Catholic Church for a thousand years and was central to the Protestant Church, you know, uh, during the Protestant Revolution with um, Martin Luther, um, you know, after he nailed his 90 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, which started the Protestant revolution. Well, this town was at the very center of that revolution. They were Protestants, they were different. And they managed to, even though they were different throughout all of the, the, the Protestant, um, this was the sort of the Renaissance, the age of enlightenment, but it wasn't just the Age of Enlightenment. It was a, an almighty great battle. Um, so part of that battle, because it went on for 100 years, mm -hmm. part of that battle was the Thirty Years' War, they call it, which mostly involved Germany. And they say that in that battle, which was basically Protestants against Catholics, um, half of the population of Germany died. That's a big battle. Half That's of the population, huge. can you imagine in modern terms what that would look like? That was the scale of the battle of this Protestant revolution against the Catholic Church. It was a very hard fought battle. And at the center of this battle was this Principality of Orange because they, uh, through inheritance, not only had this principality in the south of France, they now owned Holland the Netherlands in the north of Europe. And of course, Holland was at the center of the Protestant revolution. It was right. one of the ringleaders of that revolution. And it was led by the princes of Orange. So that's why even today, if you go to Holland, the, um, the monarch in Holland is known as the Prince of Orange hmm. because he came, from, he came from the south of France. He came from Orange. That's why they have this this title. And note he's ginger, of course. They're all ginger. We'll go into that in a minute. <laughs> um, so, but eventually they were all kicked out. So Louis the Fourteenth 
um, they were protected uh, during this Protestant revolution down in the south of France. They were protected because the King of England was the Prince of Orange. So at that time, England had a Dutch king and he was William III. And so England was quite a powerful nation and therefore uh, the French could not move against the city of Orange uh, in the south of France, but, you know, because they feared England. Mm -hmm. But when William of Orange, the King of England, died, um, he fell off his horse. And the Catholics today still venerate the Vol. Um, no, not the Vol, the Mole. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the mole that digs holes in the ground. Right, right, right. Because apparently um, the horse stumbled on a mole um, hole hmm. and the king fell off and the king died. Hmm. And so the Catholics still venerate the um, the knight in velvet clothes, I think they call him, which is a, a, vol, uh, a mole because a mole has a very velvety skin. Right. And so they still venerate this champion of the Catholic Church, who's the Vole who killed King William III um, of England. But anyway, once Sir William was dead, then Louis XIV could do whatever he liked in his view. And so he destroyed the city of Orange in the south of France. And all of the Orangeites had to move and all of the... Um, uh, Huguenots, because it was a Huguenot capital as well. They were married into the, the Huguenot families, which were all Protestants, of course. And oh. they all had to move up to Holland. And so Holland was repopulated then at that time with all of these uh, French people from Orange. Huh. So you can see how central this place was right. to the Protestant Revolution. And of course, I think this was linked to Mary Magdalene because she was the orange, she was the golden girl, as it were, mm -hmm. because she was linked to this family who were called Orania, or meaning gold, meaning orange. And the wife of the original Prince of Orange, um, who, um, what was she called? So the 8th century Guillaume de Orange, his wife was called Queen Orable which doesn't sound so good in the English, but of course it means the golden queen, mm -hmm. queen or the golden queen. Um, and of course, Mary Magdalene was the golden princess. That's why she's always clothed in gold or orange. So I go through that in quite some detail in the book because it's quite a fascinating story that Absolutely. this family might have influenced, greatly influenced the uh, outcome of the society and religion and the technology within Europe. Because remember, everything you see around you today comes from the Protestant Revolution. So this is just not a matter of religion. All of the technology you're looking at, the computers, the cars, um, all of the electronics, anything in the modern world comes from the Protestant Revolution. Because it was the Protestant Revolution that gave us the Enlightenment. It was the Enlightenment that gave us the Age of Reason. Mm -hmm. And it was the Age of Reason that gave us the Industrial Revolution. And it is no um, coincidence that it happened in that order. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Industrial Revolution would not have been possible 
under the regulations of the Catholic Church. It had to wait for the Enlightenment to come along so that people could imagine the impossible. Right. They could right, right. imagine, you know, science, how the world worked, how the cosmos worked, how, um, you know, atoms and chemicals and everything worked. It, I mean, it was a take on alchemy, of course, but it was alchemy on steroids. Finally, people could investigate and find out how things worked. And that was the Industrial Revolution. So you can see how important this was. And this uh -huh. came, all of this came from Orange in the south of France oh. via the Protestant Revolution, which Holland was a central component of. I mean, they, they were the people who drove the Protestant Revolution. Um, so, you know, it's, it's central to the European story and therefore central to the Western story of the Western world. Mm -hmm. That's why we had the Industrial Revolution and Islam did not. Islam mm -hmm. has never had uh, an Industrial Revolution. Still does not today because its philosophy will not allow it. Mm -hmm. um, you cannot have the Industrial Revolution and a technical revolution under a, uh, a religion that, that promotes um, predestiny. And that God will do, you know, um, God will assist you whatever you do. So it doesn't matter how hard you try or not try, uh, God will look after you, which is why, um, in general, uh, Islam is so slothful in comparison with uh, the Western world. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't have a work ethic. And whereas the Protestant revolution was all about a work ethic. So it, it does depend, you know, it does matter who we elect as our leaders and what type of religion we have to actually guide us. Mm -hmm. And I say that as, as an atheist, but it does matter, you know. The difference between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church was enormous. And it all came from Orange in the south of France. I had no idea. That's just fantastic. Yeah, it's an interesting story, isn't it? So, yeah. It's hard to wrap your head around it, though, because, you know, from what we've been taught and what we've learned over the years to this, it's just it's incredible. <laughs> it is. It's a, a completely different story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and a, a much more important one, but a very interesting one as well, um, that I think it should be taught more even just the secular part right you know right. of how orange and the protestant revolution has affected our lives that's not taught very well it's, it's taught as a, a religious dispute right yeah but what about the secular implications of that dispute they are more important i would say than than the theological results of that dispute mm -hmm. um Absolutely. it's and it it's important because, you know, we have those choices today. We still have those type of choices. What sort of society do we want? Do we want to go down the woke world, which mm -hmm. has um, elements of tyranny amongst it that I would regard as being similar to the Catholic Church? Right. This cancellation culture fits so nicely with the Catholic Church. Whereas if you don't like what somebody is saying, um, you just cancel them. Mm 
-hmm. or in Catholic terms, you burn them at the stake, the same right. as they burnt right. Bruno at the stake right. and various other people. You know, the first person to um, uh, translate the New Testament into English, they burnt him at the stake. Um, that was at Vilvoorde in Belgium. Tyndale, wasn't it? What was this Christian? Was it William? I forget. I think it was William Tyndale. Um, and he was burnt alive for the grave um, crime of translating the New Testament into English. Huh. Because the Catholic Church didn't want people to be able to read what the uh, uh, Gospels actually said, because they might find out what the Gospels were really about. They might actually be like myself, finally finding out that the Gospels were actually talking about Edessa. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want anybody to know that. And so they kept it in Latin or the Greek. It was available right. in Greek and right. Latin, Greek, but yeah. not in the common languages of, of Europe. Right. And so for the heinous crime of translating the uh, Gospels, Tyndale was burnt at the stake at Vilvoorde, uh, which is next to Brussels Airport, just north of Brussels Airport. And there is a, a, a little memorial there. I'm not sure if I've got a picture of it, but anyway. Um, not much to see, considering it's such an important um, part of our history. So, yes, this, this woke idea of cancellation is right up the Catholic tree, as it were. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what they were doing for 1,500 years. You know, make it a thousand years between sort of the Council of um, uh, um, Council of Nicene. Oh, I've forgotten its name for a minute. Um, but anyway, the Council of the First Council and the Second Council at uh, Chalcedon, um, which was fourth, uh, fifth century, uh, up until the Reformation, so a thousand years. Mm -hmm. They practiced cancel culture. You were not allowed to challenge the accepted opinion mm -hmm. of the Catholic Church. Anything else was misinformation. You see the familiar terminology coming along. Right, Conspiracy right. theory. Right. You were right. not allowed to challenge what the Catholic Church said. So you were not allowed to think. That's basically what they were doing until people like Galileo came along, but he only came along because of the Protestant revolution and the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the woke community are doing. They are canceling you. They are saying it's a misinformation. They are saying right. uh, it's, um, <clears throat> uh, what else did I say it was? Um, Anyway, they're saying it's misinformation, it's conspiracy, right. and you're not allowed to even think it. And if you do think it, and you put it down anywhere on the internet, we will destroy you uh -huh. because you don't. We don't want you saying those heretical things. Uh -huh. Just like the Catholic Church didn't want you saying anything heretical, and so that's why I am completely opposed to anything to do with. Uh, the woke movement. It is too much like the tyranny of right. the Catholic Church. Absolutely. And the Catholic Church stifled progress for a thousand years. 
In fact, they took us back because we had more information and more knowledge before the Catholic Church came along. Mm -hmm. um, the Church of Jesus and James had much more information than during the Catholic era. Right. I mean, they had things like, um, do I have a picture of? I'm just looking for a zodiac in my little pictures. Yes, I do. Let's let's see if I can pick this out without knocking myself off. I'll be very careful <laughs> which buttons I press. And I shall share that screen. And now you should see. Let's see it coming up. If you uh yes, if you accept that, there we go. There we go. You should see a zodiac. Now, this is a Jewish zodiac in a synagogue, <laughs> which is unusual for a starters. Mm -hmm. um, this is a Nazarene synagogue on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, just below Tiberias. And this zodiac was owned by Jesus, Jesus of Gamala, the same guy that we were talking about who was married to uh, Mary Bothus, Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, it's a standard, for those of you that can't see, this is a, a standard Greek zodiac with all the standard symbols, as um, everyone will be familiar with. And it's a mosaic. It's a large mosaic. It's about five meters across, so it's, it's quite big. Um, and in the center of this zodiac, we have, if I zoom in a little bit, Helios, the sun god. Uh -huh. which is unusual for a starters. Remember, this is in a Jewish synagogue. <laughs> and we've got the highly heretical image of Helios, the sun god, holding a blue spherical earth in his gravitational grasp. Wow. Now, this, this is first century. This is long before Copernicus, which is why, you know, Cop Copernicus is known as the great liar. Uh, in 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 the Freemasonic world, right? Because he didn't invent the heliocentric model of the um, uh, solar system. It was known about. It it is here on this first century zodiac, um, and it's first century. Uh, some archaeologists will say this is fourth century, but uh, processionally speaking, mm -hmm. it is first century because it points to the conjunction between. Aries and Pisces. And also we have uh, a paragraph in the works of Josephus Flavius that mentions this particular zodiac. So uh, we can be pretty sure this is first century. Mm -hmm. But we have Helios holding a spherical blue uh, earth in his gravitational grasp. And we know it's spherical because you can see on the left side um, it's illuminated. And on the right side is not illuminated just as a sphere would look you know with the sun um on it and also I, i'm not sure if you can see on this image it's not such a very good one but there are two golden bands on this uh ball he's holding and they are latitudes of um lines of latitude and longitude Whew. and they are curved now that would only happen on a sphere Right. So he's holding a sphere in his gravitational grasp. This is the sun holding the earth in his gravitational grasp. And this was known about in the first century by the Nazarene Church of Jesus and James, because this is a, a Nazarene 
synagogue. Mm -hmm. That is the level of knowledge that they had in that era. Wow. And, um, oh, this is slightly off topic, but it's interesting nonetheless, because we're talking about Mary Magdalene. Right. Um, Last Supper table. So at the Last Supper table, Jesus, of course, would be with his disciples, but also with his wife, right. Mary Magdalene. Now, this is the Last Supper from Drogheda Cathedral in Southern Ireland, mm -hmm. just above Dublin. Now, who is on the right side of Jesus looking at this? sculpture it's a it's a woman isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is supposed to be saint john so for people who can't see this this is exactly the same it's a copy of um the leonardo da vinci last supper okay, right if you can yeah, imagine that in your mind okay and there's always been this argument as to how feminine the St. John character looks like right. on the right side of Jesus. Right. But what about this one? Is that male or female? I mean, female, she, she even has a bust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this is common. This is how secrets can be held in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And this is how you have to look at these things and interpret them because nobody could admit this. So it was all held in code. That's why the Talmud is holding it in code with their um, Mary the Nazarene. Mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene the Nazarene was held in code. This is in code as well. And this is in Ireland. This is in Catholic Ireland. And they have this imagery. And here's another one. This is in Turku. Now, this is in safer ground. This is in Finland. Uh -huh. uh, Turku is the previous capital of Finland. So this is in Protestant land. So it's a little bit safer, I would say. But who is that? Yeah. Wow, that's definitely feminine. And not only feminine, she's in the green and gold or the green and red yes. of Mary Magdalene. Yeah. 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 And that's a woman. There's no way in the world <laughs> that is a man. <laughs> I now... I know that nowadays you're not allowed to say that because, right. you know, even prime ministers are confused nowadays. Um, the leader of our op opposition refused to say what a woman was. Right. Um, and I think one of your. One of your candidates said exactly the same. One of your candidates for the judiciary, I think, when they go, they have a meeting in in the um, in in the House. Right. Um, uh, what do you call your house in America? The Congress. The Congress. Yeah. Yeah. They have always. They have these. Um, they have to be sort of voted on and elected, and so they interview these right. people. And right. she's she was going for a position of judge or something. She said exactly the same. They said, "Can you define a woman?" And she said, uh, "No, I can't." <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, perhaps we shouldn't say whether she's male or female. But anyway. Right. In old-fashioned terms, from about five years ago, uh, this is a woman <laughs> sitting sitting on the right side of um, of, of Jesus. Yeah, it's no a Last Supper. Yeah, no question scene. about it. 
exactly the same as uh, the Leonardo one. But again, this is in a cathedral in Finland, in Turku, which is the previous capital of Finland. And here's another one. This is this is Napoleon's Last Supper table. And as you can see, it's an identical copy uh, of Leonardo's again, exactly the same characters in the same position. Um, but this obviously uh, Napoleon. So this is what this is 19th century, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a mosaic, but it's been very well done as a mosaic, isn't it? It looks really crisp with nice colors on it. Now, who is on the right side of Jesus in this one? Same colors, yeah. Uh, yeah, and she's in the green and gold. Yeah. So let's uh, let's zoom in on her. So this is the character on the right side of Jesus. That's a woman. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> it can't be anything else, can it? And she's in the green and gold um, or the green and red of Mary Magdalene with her blonde hair again. Um, yeah, of course it's is Mary Magdalene. So this has been known about, of course. There is no argument, you know. I, uh, this is Napoleon. This is not someone in the local church has decided to make this. This is Napoleon Bonaparte who has commissioned this um, Last Supper scene. And he has portrayed the person on the right side of Jesus as being Mary Magdalene. And this has a long history, of course, because this is Michelangelo. Right. This one. The Pieta. This is in um, the Vatican, uh, in St. Saint, Saint, uh, Saint Peter's in the Vatican. Oh. Um, very famous sculpture by Michelangelo. This is the Pieta. Uh, what is wrong with the Pieta? So this is a, a, a very famous sculpture of Mary holding... Um, Jesus. Holding Jesus. Holding after, yeah. But what's wrong with this sculpture? This is how you can hold secrets in, in, in plain sight. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding uh, Jesus in her arms after he's been crucified. Right, right. What's the problem with it? I, all, I, all I can see is he's so small. I don't That's... No, the real problem is she is younger than Jesus is. Okay, okay. So how can it be his mother? Right. Wow. It's not his mother. <laughs> it's Mary Magdalene. So the Pieta is actually Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And she is the one that's holding Jesus because she is the one who was there at the tomb. It wasn't Mary, the mother, that was at the tomb. It was Mary Magdalene who was at the tomb, who was the first person to see Jesus. She's and also that, the one that, that washed his feet, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Michelangelo was saying that, you know, Mary and Jesus were an item. They were mm -hmm. married. Um, mm -hmm. And this has been well known. And if we want to go back to the orange business, they all had ginger hair oh. and this entire family has had ginger hair um, this is Ramesses the second Ramesses the great 
So we're going back in history here. Ramesses the Great, he's sort of like uh, 1250, mm -hmm. 1280 BC. Um, and Ramesses the Great had ginger hair, as you can see in this picture. Mm -hmm. This is his mummy. So we're looking at his mummy. Mm -hmm. Now, this is real ginger hair. This is nothing to do with the um, mummification process because right. this mummy was taken to uh, France for preservation. Uh, it was beginning, there were some bugs on it. So anyway, they took it to France mm -hmm. to um, preserve it. And Professor Calcaldi, who was the chief forensic officer in Paris, did a full investigation. And he said that this is true um, ginger hair, wavy ginger hair, he called it. Um, so nothing to do with a dye not right. henna this is true ginger hair um because this all of this family were if you look at yuya and uh, thuyu who were the patriarch um and matriarch of the amana family of nefertiti and uh akhenaten mm -hmm. they had ginger hair as well mm -hmm. um and this has been a topic recently because of dear old netflix um, you remember Netflix came out with their black Cleopatra? Yes. Hmm. This is Cleopatra. Absolutely. And she's extremely white and she's extremely ginger. <laughs> well, now, we can be fairly... Is, I mean, this is down the royal family lineage, too. I mean, it, they're all related. Oh, yeah. yeah so this brings, us, this brings us full circle to Prince Harry, you know, where everybody was so oh, yeah. shocked because, yeah. he, because of his hair. Yeah, he's ginger as well. well all, all of our monarchy have been. And all of his um, two kids too, yeah. From, from William I uh, onwards, and we can talk about that in a minute. But this is Cleopatra. Now, she was Ptolemy, but she was uh, married into the Egyptian royal line as well. But the um, Ptolemies, the Greeks, were also ginger. If you remember the Iliad, um, mm -hmm. Helen of Sparta was, was blonde-haired. She was ginger. So yeah. was Achilles. Um because there had been royal links between Egypt and Greece uh, before Greece had even become a power. Right. And so the royal family in Greece were ginger. Mm -hmm. And so this is Cleopatra. Now, this is a very early painting, so we can be fairly sure this is fairly accurate. This comes from Herculaneum. So this, this image was buried in AD 70. So it was probably uh, drawn within less than a century uh, of Cleopatra's death, probably within 60, 60 years of her death. Mm -hmm. So, and they portrayed her as being ginger-haired, huh. which is why we can be fairly sure that she was ginger-haired. Mm -hmm. um, but so was Muhammad. This, because they all say, if you come from the Near East, you've got to be brown with dark hair. Right. Well, look at this guy. <laughs> this is Muhammad al-Yakubi. And he is the great, 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 however many greats there are, grandson of Muhammad. Oh. And for those that can't see, he looks Scottish, basically. He's extremely right. white and pale-faced with very, very ginger hair. And you're... Find quite a few of these out in Syria because Muhammad was supposed to be ginger. If you look at the um, uh, the hadith 
right. on numerous occasions it says that the hairs because he used to cut off his beard and send it round to the various um mosques around the sort of empire mm -hmm. the, the growing empire as it was um and these little snippets of beard are all supposed to be ginger so he was ginger as well. We have this sort of you know, gingers all over the place. Mm -hmm. And that is why if you go around Afghanistan and Pakistan, you will see people like this. So we're looking at a, 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 a sort of a poor Afghani with bright ginger hair. Why does he do this? I mean, this is dyed, of course. He's not right. really ginger. Right. Um, they do this in order to look like Muhammad because they understand and here's another one they understand that muhammad was ginger therefore they're trying to look like their prophet right. um they're trying to look like muhammad because he had ginger hair and this one we'll go into this later because this in my view is an image a very early mosaic of jesus <clears throat> this is the leader of the Jewish revolt. We were talking about the Jewish revolt earlier and how it was connected with the gospel story. Mm -hmm. This is the leader of the Jewish revolt. And this is a mosaic from Judea, which was only, in fact, this was discovered after I wrote about this character, which is why I knew exactly who this was. And um, he's a king. We know that because he's wearing a diadema headband. Mm -hmm. Um, he's a leader of the revolt because the Talmud tells us that this is the leader of the Jewish revolt. He's wearing a purple cloak, just like Jesus was wearing a purple cloak. Um, and of course, he has a Jewish piot, um, a curly sidelock of hair. So we know he's Jewish. And the Edessan monarchy were all Jewish, of course. And he has ginger hair and beard. Again, wow. this character is ginger. So we have the, the ginger monarchy, basically, um, mm -hmm. which has permeated through many of the monarchies because we were looking at earlier, we were looking at the um, the princes of orange. I was just going to, and of course, the princes of orange have ginger hair as well. Right, right. <laughs> and they came, at, you know, in, in my estimation from the bloodline of Mary Magdalene. So we have this ginger monarchy, which permeates all the way through European history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of the um, kings of England and Britain were ginger. Now they came from the Normans in France, but the Normans of course were not French. They were Vikings. Mm -hmm. hence the ginger hair but where did the vikings come from um did we touch on scotty chronicon the, the history of the scots in the last no. talk no well i how, how much longer have we got well 15 minutes okay so i won't go through this i'll just do a brief overview yeah um we have the history of scott uh, of scotland which is mm -hmm. known as Scotty Chronicon, which comes out of the 14th century uh, by Walter Boer and John of Verdun. And that borrows from the Labor Gabala, which is an Irish 
uh, history, which dates from the sixth century. So it goes back a long way. And they say that the Scots came from Egypt via Queen Scota and King Gaethalos, who came from Egypt and were exiled out of Egypt and ended up in Spain. And then later on, their descendants ended up in Ireland and Scotland. Now, looking at Scotty Chronicon, they use the history of Manetho, which is the history of an Egyptian historian called Manetho, uh, who we still use today for the history of Egypt. So, I mean, this guy was writing real history. And it's quite clear from that, that this Queen Scota, from which we get Scotland or Scotland, is Ankesanamun, who was the daughter of Pharaoh Akhenaten mm -hmm. and the wife of Tutankhamun and the wife of Pharaoh I, who was the Pharaoh who followed Tutankhamun. Right. And according to this history, Scottish history, he was exiled. He, he and his wife, Ankesanamun, were exiled to, uh, from, uh, from Egypt because of this religious dispute again. Uh, and they were exiled and they went off to Spain. Mm -hmm. And then later, because they were always being attacked in Spain by the locals, they went on another exodus and went around to Ireland and to Scotland. And it is from Queen Scota that the Scots are supposed to have been named. Um, and that's why Spain and Scotland have the same name. <clears throat> Spain is called Iberia and Scotland is called Hibernia. It's the same uh, name, basically, which was supposed to be from Heba, which was a son of Queen Scota. So that's the mythology of Scotland. And of course, that is regarded as being complete mythology within right. the historical record. Nobody regards this as having any historical content whatsoever. But I went through it, and we can talk about this later, and traced quite a lot of history from this story, from Scottish Chronicon which does indicate that there may well have been an exodus out of Egypt um, that ended up in Ireland and then Scotland. And the thing about this, it's very early. So we're talking about 1300 BC, mm -hmm. long before recorded history in the north of, uh, uh, of Europe, long before our history of the Vikings and Scotland and Ireland. And these people would have been ginger because the patriarch and matriarch of the Amarna family are Yuya and Thuya and we have their mummies their mummies are in the Cairo museum and they are ginger haired in the same way that Ramesses II Ramesses the Great is ginger haired so we can be pretty sure that this is, is proper ginger and not just henna um, and so those people ended up in Scotland in circa 1000 BC or whatever, that oh. sort of era. Wow. And so we could have Scottish descent and Viking descent from this royal family. Right. Um, not much real history to prove that within 
Scotland and Scandinavia, but nevertheless, right. the story does suit all of the artifacts and the archaeology that has been found in those regions. Absolutely. And that is the history. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I don't want to interrupt. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. So what happened to Mary Magdalene? Yeah, well, uh, I think, yes, what did what happened to her? I think uh, she ended up in Orange uh -huh. and not only lived because they, you know, the mythology just has her in this cave uh -huh. near Saint-Maxime. Um, and she lived as a hermit, you know, for the rest of her days. But if she went to uh, Orange and she had a daughter with her, because, of course, on this boat, there was um, she traveled with Sarah. Uh -huh. and, and of course, Sarah means the princess. So if she traveled with her daughter, they may well have started because people in that area would have known that they were special. Uh -huh. There would have been Jewish elements in that region who uh -huh. would have known who they were, their royal heritage. And so they might have risen to becoming quite aristocratic and powerful in that region uh -huh. and therefore spawning the city of Orange as we know it today and that very famous um, monarchy, although they were only called princes they weren't allowed to call themselves kings uh -huh. because of the kings of france and so they could only call themselves princes uh -huh. so they were known as the prince of orange but she may have well have generated and precipitated that particular principality that went on to affect Europe so greatly as we've just narrated. So I think that's probably more true than the idea that she just became a hermit in a cave. Uh -huh. um, these were powerful people. They had lost their money, of course, in Judea, but they might have, I mean, these were such powerful people. They might have had properties elsewhere. Uh -huh. They might have had uh, money um, hidden away somewhere. They might have had many courtiers and helpers who managed to bring money that had been hidden away from the Romans so the Romans couldn't get it and taken, uh -huh. uh, you know, separately on another boat so that these people had some wealth when they arrived in the in Provence, in the south uh -huh. of France. Uh -huh. um, and that might have spurred them on to becoming influential and powerful in the south of France. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Powerful people like this are never short of backers. You know, right. whatever monarchy it is, there are always supporters and backers and people with influence and people with money who can help them out. Just look at what, you know, happened with the Romanovs. Right. Whether they had backers right up until now, they're still, you know, searching for the Romanov family because they're, you know, they're sure that they couldn't have died, but they did die. Um, and they were related, of course, to our monarchy. This is how integrated all of these families were. So our Duke of Kent, I think it was, um, they asked him after the 1990s when the USSR failed, um, they asked him to become the King of Russia huh. because he was closely related to the Romanovs, of course, right, through right, Queen right. Victoria. And he looked like a Romanov and he looks exactly like the Romanovs with uh -huh. the beard and moustache and everything. And uh -huh. he spoke fluent Russian. So, you know, they called him up and said, you know, um, <laughs> can you become the king of Russia? And he said, well, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, 
um, which is probably a wise thing actually because it's not a <laughs> it's not a very stable place. No. But uh, that's how interrelated all of these monarchies are. Oh, well, they are. They are. Ralph, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on. I learned so much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> We're gonna have to get you back. You've got so many books out, so many topics. Oh my, you know? Yes. Just just to learn stuff. Oh hello. I've, I've got a friend has just arrived. Hello. There we go. <laughs> yes, so these the, the book is uh, Mary Magdalene, the um, Princess of Orange. Um available on Amazon. Try and get the 2017 or later edition for the modern okay. edition, because I've put more photos in it and so on. In the old uh, traditional, you weren't allowed, it wasn't very easy to get lots of images in it. Um, and the um, the tablet edition is all color, of course. We can't do color with the print on demand, but we can do it on the tablets. So that's got lots of nice color photos in that. Um, and again, the tablet edition should only about be about five or six dollars. It's not very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed some people are trying to put editions out there at exorbitant prices. It's not supposed to right. be very expensive. Right. Um, I'm available on Facebook on uh, Facebook, uh, ralph.ls.144. And that's fairly active. Um, I've got videos up on my video channel, which is just uh, YouTube Ralph Ellis. And look for the uh, golden, uh, the gold and red phoenix, basically, is the thumbnail. Uh, and what else can I say? That's about it, really, I think. Thank you so much. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'd like to get you back on and talk about another one of your books. I mean, you just got. It's just it's like a plethora of history. It's great. A mine of information. Yes. I love history. Yeah. That's one thing. I'm a history nut, and that's why I love talking to you. Yeah. All right. It's all, all interesting stuff. All right. Okay, Ralph. Okay. Th nice, nice to be I'm talking to you again, Charlotte. We'll you see you again time. later. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Look at that. Just shut off. See that? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It made the whole show until then. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Ralph. Pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. I mean, it's always so educational to talk with him. And it's like to, to absorb all that information. I loved it. I loved history. I loved humanities. I loved all that stuff. And to be able to talk to someone that's, that, that does the research that he does, it's just it's, it's just fantastic. Okay, guys. Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're Equal Opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. We're just trying to get the word out about our show. So the more people that hear about us, you know, the more we build up. Just like earlier when I asked you guys, if, if you know, if you like what you hear, to uh, subscribe at YouTube and uh, or, or follow us at Facebook. That still stands. All right. Anyway, I'm going to let you go, and I will see you soon. Maybe tomorrow night, 6.30. Depends when this hits. Uh, this is pre-recorded, so it just depends when, when, when this video is going to hit. And... Uh, but either way, I will see you soon, and have a great rest of your day or evening or whatever it happens to be. See ya.